Well, join me in John chapter 14. John chapter 14. And in the providence of God, we have been in this chapter for the last two months or so, and, and you laugh. Uh, we're going to be in it for about another month, just to prepare. It's no laughing matter. But I do think in the providence of God, we have come to this chapter, and as you know, in verse one, it's a chapter that calls us to not let our hearts be troubled, and really, is there a better chapter that we can spend our time in, given the world situation that we find ourselves in? We see the chaos around us. We have a chapter here about inner peace. We have a chapter about a calm heart. I was thinking even this week with the chaos that surrounds the whole Supreme Court leak. Where does justice go in this country? Will justice be defined by by the mob, by the group? Where does it go? Where will it travel? So you have chaos even surrounding that, that thinking about coming out of a global pandemic that poses its own problems and concerns and uncertainties. We do need to be reminded daily of verse one, do not let your heart be troubled. Because it is easy to let our hearts fear the future, isn't it? That is easy. It is easy to let our minds drift into the abyss of the unknown and let worry control us and quite often paralyze us. It's easy to allow the distress of the moment to distract us from the hope that we have in our Savior and the calling that we have for his gospel. Think back for the last two plus years and just ask yourself that very real question. Have you been distracted from your gospel call? Is your mind focused on other things, prioritizing those? It's easy to find our hope and security in this temporal world, our hope in our next elected leader. If only this person can get elected. Hope in a conservative Supreme Court. Hope in a growing portfolio. Hope in our health and our family. You can keep adding to that list for the rest of the day, but each of those things, each of them will fail us. And all of them will at one point disappoint us because all of them are temporal and fallen. But the peace that Christ promises to give us will never fail. Look down at verse 27. Jesus' promise, my peace I give to you. Here's the key, not as the world gives. Christ's hope is different. And Christ's security is not based upon the removal of trouble. Never has that been the case. Christ's peace that he gives to us is based upon his presence, his promises, and his purposes while in the midst of trouble. It's not until the end of the book, it's not until Revelation 21 where we read these words, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no longer any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. But until that glorious day, there will be tears and hurt 
and death and loss and pain. And thus we need Jesus' heart calming words of chapter 14 today just as much as the apostles needed them in the first century. And each of these heart calming promises Jesus offers, remember there are 12 of them in total, each of them is an expression of Jesus' love for us. One commentator wrote this, wonderful words in this awful hour of unparalleled events looming with Gethsemane, the betrayal, the denial, the mockeries, the cruel scourging and the shameful, painful death by crucifixion in view. Remember where we are, just a few hours from all of that. The Lord does not think of himself the heart of trouble of his beloved disciples occupies his loving heart. Another might have sought comfort. He seeks none, but instead comforts. It's the loving heart of our Savior. We find ourselves in verses 16 through 20. That's where we left off last week. As you remember, this is the greatest promise This is the promise that can calm the greatest fear, ease the fiercest doubt, strengthen the weakest saint. Because in verses 16 through 20, Jesus promises the greatest gift. He promises the third person of the Trinity, his Holy Spirit to indwell us and seal us and strengthen us. Read the text with me. Start in verse 16. Why do we not need to let our hearts be troubled? Because I, Jesus speaking, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper and he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will, through the Spirit, I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Just let this promise sink in. Jesus is promising to give us God. He's promising to give us God. Contrast this with what Jesus promised in verses one through seven. Jesus says that he will bring us to God, where we can live with God It's a glorious promise. It's our future. But this promise is better. Jesus ups the ante and promises that God will be sent to us and come to us and live in us. And if this doesn't floor us, then we think far too highly of ourselves. I mean, why wouldn't God want to indwell me? Don't you know me? 
And probably coupled with that, we think far too low of God. I mean, what reason could God possibly give for not residing in me? As we saw last week, again, in these verses, Jesus is giving us a central promise. This is the central promise of this chapter. Everything in this chapter leads to verses 16 through 20, flows from these verses. Why? Because the giving of the Spirit is the most glorious and the most personal of all the promises Jesus has ever, ever given to his people. So this is promise number five throughout this chapter. We put it this way, in the midst of this fallen world, we can be comforted. We can be comforted, why? Because we have been given the Spirit forever, forever. And last week, as we began to unpack this section, we were answering two questions. We focused on the first. The first was, who is the Holy Spirit? Why is he our comforter? Who is the Holy Spirit? And Jesus' answer, so heart calming, Jesus' answer, first of all, he told us that the Spirit is the Son and the Father's gift of love to us. That's why we can be comforted. The Spirit is an expression of love given to us in love. It's the beginning of verse 16. I will ask the Father, the Spirit is Christ's prayer for us, and He, the Father, will give you the Spirit. The Spirit is God the Father's answer to the Son's prayer. The Holy Spirit is nothing less than a Trinitarian gift of love to God's people. Second, who is the Holy Spirit? Jesus explains that the Spirit is also the perfect paraclete. It's translated as helper in verse 16. But the word paraclete goes far beyond a mere helper. The Spirit is also our counselor, our companion, one who comforts our fears. He's our intercessor. He offers prayers on our behalf. He's our teacher. He opens up our eyes to the words of God, the glory of Christ. Look at verse 16. This is why Jesus calls the Spirit another helper. The Spirit takes the place of a first paraclete. That would be Christ. Christ sits at the Father's right hand, but the Spirit is given so that what Christ did for his disciples, the Spirit would do for us. And so we lack nothing now that Jesus is not by our our side. We lack nothing. Why? Because the Spirit of Christ indwells us. And then a third description, heart-calming description of the Spirit. The Spirit is God's gift to us forever. Again, the end of verse 16. He will never be taken away or removed. He will be with you forever. Spirit is an everlasting gift from the Father and the Son, and this gift will continue even into eternity. And so in this sinful, fleeting, loveless world, we have been given the holy, eternal, loving spirit. This leads into that second question that we want to answer. 
that second question. From the heart-calming person of the Spirit to now the heart-calming work of the Holy Spirit. What does the Spirit do for the believer now that he's been given to us? Why can we find comfort now that the Spirit is ours? How does the Spirit's work secure our heart and give us hope when trouble surrounds us on every side? There are four answers Jesus gives in verses 17 through 20. Four answers, four works. Again, heart-calming works the Spirit does for us. Begin with work number one. Work number one, the Spirit graciously transfers us from this fallen world into the hope of Christ. The Spirit graciously transfers us from this fallen world into the hope of Christ. Start in verse 17, where Jesus calls the Spirit the Spirit of truth. The Spirit of truth. Jesus will repeat this, chapter 15. Again in chapter 16, who is the Holy Spirit? He is the Spirit of truth. Now understand the truth that Jesus has in mind here. This is not general truth. This is not temporary or temporal truth. This is specific truth. This is eternal truth. Put it this way, this is gospel truth. The saving truth about Jesus. Why do we know that? Well, connect Jesus' description here, verse 17. The spirit is the spirit of truth to what Jesus called himself back in verse six. I am the what? I am the truth. I am the truth. I am the gospel truth. So the Holy Spirit now is the spirit of the gospel. And he is the one who shatters every false gospel lie. That's his work. Remember what Jesus called Satan in John chapter eight. The devil is the father of what? The father of of lies. The father of every Christless religion. The father of every damning lie and false gospel. He's the father of the lies that lead only to hell and to doom. But remember, those were the lies we once believed. That was the hellbound path we once walked. Never forget where we came from. Until, continue verse 17, here's the key, until the spirit of truth rescued us from the father of lies and opened our eyes to the saving truth of Jesus. This is the spirit's work of regeneration. When the spirit changes us from the inside out, when he instills in us new life, a life of faith that longs to follow Christ, a life of repentance that turns from sin. That's the Spirit's work. It's when the Spirit gives us that new heart. The Spirit grants us new eyes that see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. 
supernatural work by grace alone, a work we did not ask for. We did not ask for this. It was the spirit who took the initiative to do this to us. It was the spirit who came to us, saved us. He did not wait for us to come to him. And notice what Jesus adds to this, emphasizing the spirit's work of regeneration. The spirit of truth whom the world, notice now, cannot receive. The world here, it's John's favorite expression to describe mankind's rebellion against God. Think of John chapter one. Jesus was in the world, the fallen world. Here's the problem, the world, the world, the fallen world, that evil world system did not know him. When we come into this world, we are fallen. We are depraved. We do not know Christ. Even when Christ walked this planet, the people did not see him as God's son. The world wanted nothing to do with him as savior. They rebelled against his calls to faith and repentance. It's the darkened minds, the blind eyes of the world, the rebellious world. Think of John 3. Light, Christ, has come into the world. Here's the problem. What characterizes the world? It is that men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. So the world, according to John, is the fallen realm of sinful man. That's why Jesus says in John 7, the world hates me. The world hates me. And all of us were a part of that world. Left to ourselves without the supernatural inbreaking of the Holy Spirit. Continue verse 17. We cannot receive. That is strong language. We cannot. It is impossible. We do not have the power to receive the gospel. Jesus is saying that unbelievers are actually incapable, incapable of receiving the truth of Christ, powerless in and of themselves in that state, powerless to believe in the gospel of Jesus. Why, continue verse 17, because it, the evil world system, every unbeliever does not see him. They cannot see in faith the glory of Christ. They do not see because they cannot see. They have spiritually blinded eyes to the gospel. And remember, that's where we were. That's who we were. The world does not see him and the world cannot know him. That's the darkened mind. So left to itself, this world has no hope No life, no salvation. This is 2 Corinthians chapter four. The God of this world, this evil world system of unbelievers, the God of this world 
saying himself, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see, that's what we see in John 14, might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Again, that's who we were. Hopeless, powerless, destined for doom. But Christ gives us his spirit. Watch the shift in verse 17. But you. Speaking of believers, the apostles here. But you, here's the contrast, but you know him. You know him. The world can't know him. It's impossible to know him, but you do. The spirit of truth, the spirit of the gospel has graciously opened your eyes to see the glory of Christ. That's the point. The spirit did that work to you. The spirit has shined the light of the gospel into your darkened mind. He has given you the eyes to see Christ's saving work. He's given you that faith to follow him, repentance to turn from sin. And in so doing, the spirit of truth has given you life and hope and forgiveness and reconciliation, salvation. It's an amazing contrast. We who were once bound to the father of lies have now been released by the spirit of truth. Continue verse 17, because he, the spirit, abides with you. He's come alongside you in a special way, a saving way. The spirit has taken the words of Christ, the gospel. He's changed you from the inside out. Supernatural work. So why can we find calmness in the midst of chaos? In peace when there is heartache, in joy where there is loss because the spirit has transferred us by his grace and because of his love, he has transferred us from the world of darkness and sin and doom and he has delivered us into the domain of light and love and hope, all in Christ. The Spirit, in his grace and in his love, has severed our relationship with the Father of lies and opened our hearts to the truth of Christ. He rescued us from the path that leads only to destruction, and he places us on the path, the road that leads to heaven. So Jesus says, be comforted. The Spirit has graciously transferred us from this fallen world. He's transferred us from this fallen world into the hope of our Savior. He's done the impossible. Which leads to a second heart-calming work the Spirit does. Work number two. The Spirit eternally indwells us with his presence. The Spirit eternally indwells us with his presence. Notice what Jesus adds at the end of verse 17. Five words, again, profound, unplumbable. 
and, speaking of the Spirit, he, Spirit, and he will be in you, in you. Yes, the Spirit opens our heart in a supernatural way through regeneration. And yes, he fills us with faith and repentance. And all of that, all of that is wonderful and breathtaking. But all of that can be done from the outside. All of that could be done with the Spirit remaining with us, alongside us, not in us. In fact, that is what the Spirit did under the Old Covenant throughout the Old Testament. The Spirit would remain with his people, but not indwell them permanently. Indeed, that is heart coming. The Spirit is with you. That is heart coming. Think of Haggai 2. I made this promise to you when you came out of Egypt. What's the promise? My Spirit is abiding in your midst, with you, but not in you. It's what we see throughout the Old Testament. Yahweh was among his people when he settled in the tabernacle, the temple. He's with them. He was near them as he led them in a pillar of smoke and fire. The Spirit would even come upon selected people throughout the Old Testament to empower them to lead, to build the tabernacle, the, the temple, to prophesy. But in every instance, the Spirit would leave the Spirit left Samson. The glory of God left the temple. The Spirit's presence in the Old Testament was selective and temporary, which adds to the astonishing nature of Jesus' promise here. All of that changes. Jesus says, after I ascend to my Father, the Spirit's presence will completely change with my people. The Spirit will no longer be among you. No, my Spirit will now be in you, and not temporarily, but forever, never to depart, never to be taken away. Verse 17, he will be in you, all believers, in you. This applies to ownership. Ownership, we now belong to the Lord. This means intimacy. God cannot be any closer to us. It implies fruitfulness and sanctification and holiness. That's the Spirit's work on our life. But more than any of that, Again, always connecting this back to that main point, verse one, Jesus wants us to feel, because of the spirit indwelling us, Jesus wants us to feel comforted and safe, secured, cared for. He wants us to know that we are indeed loved because of the spirit's indwelling. Do you know Psalm 139 Psalm 139, it was one of the very first psalms I had to memorize in fifth grade. I'll never forget it. I'm gonna read it here just so I don't forget it. But it's one of those great psalms of comfort. It's comforted many. 
It was penned by David. He asked this, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? And David says, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest parts of the sea, even there, even there, your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. Those are words of comfort. David clung to those promises in his times of trouble. But for us today, we have a greater promise than Psalm 139. Because the Spirit's presence with us is even greater than he was with David. The Spirit's comfort is closer than it was with any Old Testament saint. Now that the Spirit indwells us, this is how we can sing and cling to Psalm 139. Where can I go from your Spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, yes, you are there. But even more than that, your Spirit also is inside of me. If I make my bed in Sheol, the grave, behold, you are there. But even more than that, your spirit indwells me. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the seas, yes, even there, your hand will lead me. But now, your spirit, because of Christ's ascension, In Christ's prayer to send, your spirit seals me from the inside. And yes, your right hand will lay hold of me, but even more than that, your spirit resides within me forever. We have a better promise than Psalm 139. Never are we left alone in this world because never are we without Christ's spirit. Never are we left hopeless in this world because never are we without the Spirit. There is nowhere we can go and there is nothing we can do that would cause our Lord to remove his Spirit from us. And remember from last week, the Spirit and the Son are so united They share the same nature that to be given the spirit to indwell us is to be given the son to indwell us. That's how united they are. And that is why Jesus can promise, we looked at it last week, but why Jesus can promise in verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I will come to you through my spirit. Never will you be without me because of the Spirit. It's just an unplumbable mystery. And like it or not, we cannot grasp this in its fullness. Sinclair Ferguson, he has written this. We can articulate this theology easily enough, but who can grasp its implications? No deeper intimacy of fellowship with Jesus is possible. We share one spirit with Christ. 
We cannot fully understand that. But even because, with this beyond our grasp of fully understand, Jesus says, in faith, believe me and be comforted because you are never alone. You are never going to be a spiritual orphan. The spirit eternally indwells us with his presence. He will never let you go and you will never be left behind. Third work, third, third heart coming work the spirit does for us. We see trouble all around us, remember, the Spirit powerfully guarantees our future resurrection. The Spirit powerfully guarantees our future resurrection. So we're moving now from the Spirit's work of regeneration, changing our heart, conversion, and then the indwelling by the Spirit, sanctification. Jesus now fast forwards to the Spirit's work to secure our glorification. So Christ is spanning the full spectrum of our life. And he's assuring us that we never, there is no time, no time in our lives that we never need to let our hearts be troubled. Look at verse 19. Jesus promises, after a little while, the world will no longer see me. Well, why? Because I'm about to die, Jesus says. And once I die, I will not appear to the unbelieving world again. I will appear later. That will be with judgment. But the last view the unbelieving world will have of me is me hanging and beaten on a cross. Again, a transition, another but you. Verse 19, but you. It's not the last view of me that you will have, but you will see me. And then he adds, because I live. So you're going to see me because I will live again. I'll resurrect from the dead. You'll see me because the grave will not hold me. You'll see me because I will appear to you alive. This is something Jesus has promised in John chapter two, destroy this temple destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And then John says, Jesus was speaking of the temple of his body. Crucify me, kill me, but I will be resurrected. And notice, Jesus says, I will raise it up. John 10, I lay down my life so that I may take it. Again, those are resurrection promises here. In verse 19, 14, 19 is another resurrection promise. You will see me again. But here's where this resurrection promise is different from the others. In John 2 and in John 10, Jesus says, I, Jesus, will resurrect himself from the dead. The resurrection is a Trinitarian act, Father, Son, and Spirit. But in John 2 and John 10, I will raise it up. I will take my life again. But here in verse 19, the context of this work of, of uh, resurrection is the Holy Spirit. The member of the Trinity Jesus has in mind in verse 19 in regards to his resurrection is the Holy Spirit who will resurrect him from the dead. 
Think of Romans 1. The Son of God was resurrected from the dead according to the spirit of holiness. The spirit's involved in this work. The spirit who indwells the believer in verse 17 is the spirit who resurrects the savior in verse 19. And why is this promise important? Why is this work, resurrecting work of the spirit important? Well, finish verse 19. Because, Jesus says, I live because I live because the spirit will resurrect me from the dead. Here's my promise to you. Because I live, here it is, you will live also. It's the same spirit who rescued you from Satan's domain will be the spirit who resurrects you to future glory. His work doesn't end. Regeneration, sanctification, now glorification. When Christ appeared to his apostles after his resurrection, it was, yes, confirmation the Father accepted his sacrifice. That is true. When Christ appeared to his apostles after his resurrection, it was confirmation that he had paid the full penalty for sin on the sinner's behalf, those who would believe. But it was also confirmation when Jesus resurrected and appeared, it was also confirmation that he had defeated death for us. And that because he rose again from the dead through the spirit, we too will be raised from the dead through the Spirit. Listen to Romans chapter eight. And you're going to see, you're gonna see how similar this is to Jesus's promise. Romans eight eleven. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. That's, that's verse 17. The Spirit indwells us. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead, speaking of the Father here, he, the Father, will also give life to your mortal bodies. Jesus' resurrection, from that comes our resurrection. And how will the Father do this? How will he glorify us? Here it is, through his Spirit who what? who dwells within you. If the spirit has been given to you to indwell in you, the spirit is going to resurrect you. The spirit's resurrection of Jesus is the spirit's powerful guarantee that he will resurrect us from the dead as well. That's our future, that's our hope. It's no wonder Jesus can say in Verse two, you will be with me in my father's house. Work number four. Work number four. Heart coming work of the spirit. The spirit intimately unites us to the Trinity. The spirit intimately unites us to the Trinity and be staggered by this. Be staggered by this. Verse 20, in that day, in that day for the apostles, that was Pentecost, when finally the spirit would come and be given. For us, 
It's at the moment the spirit indwells us, regenerates us. In that day, you will know, the spirit will confirm this to you. The spirit will open up your eyes to see that I am in my father. So you're gonna understand now, as much as we can as creatures, You're going to understand Christ's eternal relationship with the Father. That will increase, that will deepen. You'll believe the glorious identity of Christ, but even more than that, Jesus says this, you, we, will also begin to grasp the application, the application of Christ's union with his Father. And we will begin to understand how it personally affects us. Christ and the Father affecting us. Continue verse 20. You'll understand that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Remember the graphic that we had from last year, that graphic. The Spirit or Christ through the Spirit in us and then an us in Christ, and then Christ in God. That's the unity, that's the union. So Christ is teaching here, through the Spirit, we are united to Christ. He's in us, we're in him. And Jesus says that the Spirit-given unity between us and Christ is so close, it is so close, that it is comparable to the unity between Christ and his Father, as much as it can be for a creature. Just as the Son is in the Father, we're in Christ. Just as the Son is in the Father, the Son is in us. The Trinitarian unity between the Father and the Son now incorporates us. Again, be staggered at this. I am in my Father, and because of the Spirit's uniting work, you are now in me, Jesus says, and I in you. This brings us out of our league of understanding. Yet there are applications from this. For one, because Christ is in us, and we are in him, and he is in the Father, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. The Father loves us as he loves his Son. We're in the Son. Two, because Christ is in us, and we are in Christ, and he is in the Father, nothing can sever our unity with the Godhead. Because if it could, that would mean the son would have to be severed from his father. And then third, because Christ is in us and we are in him and he is in the father, nothing can ever dissolve our fellowship with the Trinity. Their love for one another will always overflow into a love for us. And all of this, all of this is because of the Spirit's work 
of uniting us to the Son. It's out of our league to fully understand, I get it. But through the Spirit, we are united to Christ as much as the Son is united to his Father. It's no wonder Paul wrote this, your life, Colossians 3, your life is hidden. It's protected, it is guarded. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. It's an eternal security. Because, verse 16, Christ asked his father to send the spirit and the father lovingly answered that request. So why do we not need to let our hearts become troubled in this temporal world? Because we have been given the Holy Spirit forever. There's no greater gift that could be given to us. There's no greater heart coming promise that Christ could have offered. Spirit is an overflow of the love the Father and the Son have for us and into the Spirit who rescues us from this fallen world and indwells us with his presence and guarantees our eternal future and unites us to the Trinity forever. Let's give praise to him. Father, we are thankful, thankful that we have a promise that transcends culture, transcends time, transcends this fallen world. Everywhere we turn, there is trouble. And it's spiraling more and more. And yet we have a peace with you. And we have a hope, not as the world gives, but only as your son can give it. Namely, we have your spirit. We thank you for this gift. We thank you for this comfort. May we cling to this promise and cherish the work of your spirit within us. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.